Hello, Irenicast listeners. Before we get into today's show, I just want to let everyone know that we are coming up on our 200th episode here at Irenicast, and we want to do something a little special for that. So we want to hear from you. The 200th episode will officially be posted on April 19th. And in the meantime, we'd like to gather questions from you. So if you have questions for us about theology, maybe even about our personal lives, who knows, please send those to us. You can email us. Our email is in the show notes at irenicast.com slash 196. You can also submit questions on our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or even better, you can email us an audio clip if you want to have your voice on the show with either your question or something you just wanted to say to us or about the show that we'd love to air. And we just kind of want to put all that stuff together and have a, a fun kind of special episode for episode 200. So we're going to be announcing this a little bit more as we draw closer. But if you would like to get your voice on the show, send us an audio clip. Or if you're a little nervous about recording yourself, send us a note, a question, anything, and uh, we will we will put it on that episode coming up. So Without any further ado, here is this week's episode with Dr. Thomas Ord. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are a Renicast, a group of folks leaning into our progressive Christian imaginations. This is Rajiv. I'm Jeff. I'm Bonnie. And I'm Casey. On the first and third Tuesday of every month... We provoke conversation for shifting perspectives on theology and culture. Thank you all for joining us this week. We have a very special guest that Bonnie is going to introduce you to, and then we are going to dive into a juicy conversation. <laughs> yeah, we are We are so delighted to have Dr. Tom Ord with us on the podcast today. Uh, Tom Ord is a theologian, philosopher scholar of multidisciplinary studies. He has written uh, more than 25 books and has a forthcoming book, uh, the end of February, called Pluriform Love, that I'm very excited to get my hands on and read. I also know Tom as uh, my advisor in my doctoral program through Northwind Seminary and the Center for Open and Relational Theology, which is where Tom, you're the director of the Center of Open and Relational Theology. Isn't that correct? That's right. Yep. So with all of those wonderful things you bring to our conversation, we are super excited to pick your brains a little bit and talk about eschatology in relation to open and relational theology. But before we go there, why don't you just share a little bit with us about your background? Tell us, you know, who are you? What what is your where where did you come from? How did you end up in open and relational theology as a theologian? Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about my background. I uh, grew up on a little farm in eastern Washington State. My parents uh, have have Christian backgrounds. My mother was a Pentecostal holiness person, and my father was in the Dutch Reformed, the Calvinist end of things. They got together and moved to this little town where I was born. I uh, went when I was a child uh, to a little Church of the Nazarene, and I'm still a part of that tradition. I'm an ordained elder there. For me growing up, church was sort of the center of our family life. My parents were on the church board for probably 50 years. We were there for every activity, and I gave my heart to Jesus many times <laughs> as a child. I was a person in high school who took my faith pretty seriously. 
And by the time I got to college, eventually decided I thought I might want to go into ministry of some sort. I was a gung-ho evangelist, you know, part of Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, out there trying to save souls. And then the final year of my college career, I took a course in philosophy of religion. And by that time, I had started to question some of the beliefs that I'd had. And this particular course in doing some of the readings there for the first time really challenged my basic assumptions about God and reality. And for the sake of intellectual honesty, I became an atheist or agnostic. Um, I just couldn't believe in God anymore. I remember coming to pick up my fiance to go to dinner one evening, and she's now my wife. Uh, she gets in the car. I turn to her and I say, you know what? I just can't believe in God anymore. And at this point, both she and I were uh, ministry majors at the end you know, of our last year of school, getting ready to go out there and change the world. And here I didn't believe in God. I wasn't an, an atheist for very long because I kept at the intellectual quest and eventually came to the place where I decided that it made more sense that there was a God than there was not. I thought it was more plausible. I didn't know for sure. I still don't know for sure if there's a God, but it seems plausible to me. And two issues were kind of at the center of that return to belief in God. One was my search for meaning. I didn't think there could be ultimate meaning in reality if there wasn't a God to ground that meaning. And I had these intuitions that I ought, that I ought to be a loving person and that other people ought to be loving. And I couldn't have a foundation or ground or source for those intuitions if there wasn't such a thing as God. But when I say I came back to believe in God, it's a pretty basic belief. Like, I believe there's a God of love, thought Jesus is pretty cool, and that was about it. I eventually went into uh, ministry, got graduate education, my doctorate, and I guess you could say that a lot of my thinking over the last, what's it been, 30 years, has been trying to make sense of these deep intuitions I have about God, and that has freed me up to throw off a lot of the ideas that I once believed that no longer made sense to me and try to reconstruct something that makes better sense. Thank you, Tom. I, I This isn't just a conversation between me and Tom. Other people can also jump in, but I will be happy to talk all day long because I enjoy, the, I very much enjoy the conversations that we've had. You know, I think we have some common ground amongst the five of us because, as our listeners know, each of us comes from an evangelical uh, tradition, fundamentalist tradition as well. And um, Jeff, right? You have some Pentecostal holiness in yep. your background. Yeah, no, I grew up uh, Assemblies of God. So Very I think good. In, in particular, this conversation that we're about to embark on in eschatology, uh, <laughs> I'm sure there's going to be some uh, interesting things th that come up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess, I, I mean, I guess that's probably a good place to start since we kind of jumpstart this uh, conversation. Obviously, all of us and many of our listeners have had a an evolving theological base in their life and in their heart and in their mind. And eschatology, I know for me, you know, like I said, growing up Pentecostal, that was it. 
Like you mm-hmm. were, you were looking for the signs, you were interpreting revelation. Like it was, it was going to be there and everything, you know, I, I don't know if I've said it on the show, but I say it all the time. I feel like a big part of what we're looking at in our culture right now with Q particularly, I feel like a certain brand of eschatology has trained people to be conspiratorial minded in a way where they're looking for every word that a world leader says to interpret when Jesus is going to be here and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I guess, you know, we can start with where, where does, where does eschatology fit into a process theology or open and relational theology at all? Is it something that, that is, that would be considered a subset of that? And how, how would someone from that background or that discipline approach the idea of, of an end or the end or, or whatever? Yeah, I think I'll, I'll share my answer by talking again a little bit about my background, if that's all right. My mother was very creative, still is very creative. And she decided in my little home church that she was going to start a youth choir. I don't know if you all are part of traditions in which there was a time which youth choirs were the big deal. And I remember as a kid, one of the youth choir cantatas, musicals, whatever you call them, was Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. I can still sing some of the songs on that, even though I wasn't in the youth choir at the time. I was too young. And that sort of eschatology is one that you find also very closely tied to the Left Behind series that later you know, became so prominent within evangelicalism and, and, and beyond evangelicalism. Uh, a particular view of the end of the world that uh, had lots of bad guys and uh, the church trying to survive and this battle, and there was going to be a rapture in which somehow Jesus was going to float in on the clouds and all the good people got to go to heaven. The other ones were going to be left behind, and you might have a shot if you're left behind if you somehow made it through the struggle. But by that time, the United Nations was going to take over, put a mark on your forehead, the back of your hand. And uh, I mean, I remember as a kid being scared spitless by what might happen. And we had these end time scenarios that we would play out like, what if you were caught? The, what if, you know, you had, the, had to take the mark of the beast? What would you do? And man alive, that shaped me so much and shaped so many people I know. My wife grew up in a similar tradition. And even to this day, even though she doesn't believe any of that stuff anymore, she still on New Year's Day, she thinks that Jesus might come back. (laughs) (laughs) Now, in my tradition, uh, you didn't want to be caught in the movie theater when Jesus came back because we weren't supposed to watch movies. All of this I bring up to say that the kind of picture that's a part of my background, I suspect a part of yours, is of a God who's going to come back someday in a twinkling of an eye. No one's going to know what's going to happen. Some people are going to fly out of here. The rest of the people are going to suffer. And you have to get your life in order to get ready for that time because you don't want to be caught in the midst of sin when Jesus comes back. There are lots of issues, problems with that picture, I think, biblically, but I think I, I, I'll start with science. According to the last estimate I saw, saw, there was something like an estimated 400 million galaxies, not 400 million planets, 400 million galaxies. The idea that one guy, one human, would fly across all those galaxies 
come down to our particular earth and everyone on the entire planet would somehow see this Jesus, even though he apparently wasn't any bigger than when he left. I, I started realizing that there was just some real scientific problems with a literal reading of scripture and literal kinds of explanations people had for eschatology. But what made me most concerned were the moral implications of the traditional picture, that it was us against them. God is on our side. God doesn't like those Muslims. God doesn't like those secular professors at the university is how they would talk about it when I was a kid. And it really seemed like God had a really narrow vision. It wasn't this universal love for everyone, but was kind of this pick and choose. And so maybe the first answer to your question is to say that an open and relational process kind of vision of eschatology at least wants to get rid of a kind of view of the end of the age or an eschatological fulfillment that paints a picture of God as picking and choosing some and only on the side of the good guys, but hating everybody else, and uh, somehow is going to interrupt uh, reality to send some people to hell forever, forever and send other people to the good place. That kind of vision just doesn't align well with the vision of God and the vision of reality that most process open relational people want to affirm. So there's a, a first stab at trying to answer your good question. <laughs> yeah, the things you were talking about brought back a ton of flashbacks, <laughs> uh, made me a little nervous. I'm like, oh, you know, because one of the things about being in some of these sectarian groups is every now and then you think you're the only group that has that truth, <laughs> right? And so to hear this Nazarene talk about, you know, there's some of us are going to fly up and others are going to stay here and have to face some wrath. I'm like, oh, I thought that was just ours in the Adventist world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, then, and then my next thought is, well, maybe we actually, you know, maybe our group's got it right, right? Right, yeah. Um, I, one of the things about this arc that, that I want to touch on, and maybe you'll weave this in a little later, starting with your journey to open a relational Atheism or agnosticism is is sort of a a rebirth canal for many of us into sort of a a cleaner, unencumbered relationship with the divine. And then these things that you're talking about that are important to some people in your life that you see differently. How like can you talk a little bit about the social, personal, familial ramifications that occurred for you along the way that have just been part of the mix, you know, that you can't intellectualize away. They're part of your lived reality. Yeah, well, there's been a lot of pain in that process because many people I love and admire and our friends don't share my same theological convictions and think of me as liberal. I mean, just today in a Facebook discussion sponsored by my denomination, someone again said I was sinful because I had a different view than they had. They said, I've been deceived by vain philosophies, you know, that sort of stuff. I'm, I'm used to it now. It still sounds like you're me. doing it right, Tom. It sounds <laughs> like you're doing it right. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, yeah, I, at least I'm not the kind of person who wants to face that kind of criticism and those, you know, a lot of times they're just attacking me as a person rather than the ideas, ad hominem attacks. But 
there's a lot of difficulty going through that process. And I'm guessing you all and many of people who are listening could think back to family members who, you know, asked them hard questions and made them feel horrible because they thought differently. Um, and even if it wasn't people like your friends and family, I've gone through a lot of personal doubts. I still doubt, but sort of personal angst probably is a better word. Working through these things like, you know, if I believe X, if I believe God's a God of love, then that means I should not believe this. But if I don't believe this, I'm not going to fit into this group. They're not going to keep me. You know, it's, it's really tough. They're, the social dimension, at least for me, maybe not for some, everybody, but at least for me, it's hard. And it still is hard. I still have struggles with that. So I'm happy for what you guys are doing in this podcast and in your churches and, and other places. But I just want to testify to the strain that rethinking my views of God in the afterlife have placed on my friendships, family, and church relationships. Yeah, thank thank you for sharing that, and and thank you for sticking with it and doing the work because um, a lot of people have benefited to know that somebody else is having those questions mm -hmm. and those thoughts as well. Yeah, I've benefited from other people too in that way. I mostly benefit from hearing from Bonnie, so there you go. <laughs> uh, but really, I mean, I, I really appreciate you being here, Tom. And one of the things as you were talking that I was thinking about is um, I grew up Lutheran. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod was where I started and ended up in the evangelical world. But I have um, the, you know, the set of all of Luther's sermons. Now I should get rid of them. But uh, I at one point was reading, reading through them. And even Luther actually had this idea that Jesus was coming back at any time. And the Catholics obviously were all going to hell or whatever. They would not enter right. into heaven with Luther. And I don't know who else he would have thought was going with him. He was such a narcissist. But the reality for me was that in every age, there has been the sense that the world is ending. You know, even with climate change and all of these things, I sometimes feel like I need to be like, I need to see it through a lens of in every age, people felt like the world was ending and that Jesus was coming back. And so I, I wonder in terms of, you know, open and relational theology, this idea that if God is always sort of wandering with us, if there is always a sense in which we, the world is ending, because it kind of has to, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big issues, I mean, you don't even have to be open and relational to believe this, but if open and relational people tend to believe it, that it's not as if God has left us and has to come back sometime. Uh, if God is truly omnipresent, truly, truly present to us and all of creation, and not just here, but interactive, that's the part of the relational of open relational yeah. thought, not just present to us, as important as that is, really calling, offering, inspiring, luring, wooing, working with creation at every level, the smallest to the most complex, then this idea of somehow God having to return after an absence doesn't make a lot of sense. Exactly. Um, you already have God here and present. But uh, to your first point, for me, it was also a real revelation, I guess is the word I'll use, when I was in college and learned that that whole end times thing that, you know, people have been thinking 
these ways forever, I mean, at least since Jesus left. And even Jesus thought he was coming back pretty soon. And apparently that's not the case. Once I kind of got that historical perspective in mind, it helped me to not be nearly as worried that I would get caught in a theater when Jesus came back. Yeah. Um, I think also open and relational theology is committed to a view that God is experiencing time with us, moving through time rather than outside of time, timelessly looking at all of history. God moves with us through time into the future. And this assumes, since God is everlasting, that this there will never be a time in which time ends, if that makes sense, sense makes sense at all. That we will always be experiencing time in this life, and I happen to believe in an afterlife, in this life and the next. And so, you know, one of Augustine's most famous phrases is, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Uh, from an open and relational perspective, there's no rest, if by rest we mean of uh, cessation of movement. We're always moving in relationship with God in this life and the next. And so that means that um, there's no end of history in which time stops. And that, I think, changes the, the theological framework that one brings to questions of eschatology. If there's no absolute beginning of time and no absolute end of time, but God is always timeful and bringing us in timeful relations, then what happens after our death is a continuation, in some sense, of this ongoing giving and receiving relationship with God and others. So, so in that continuation, as you're kind of talking about like that movement, I'm having many conversations with Bonnie, you know, movement seems to be pretty central to the idea yeah. of open and relational theology. What about uh, patterns and repetition? So mm -hmm. that movement, is it like progressive? Because I think that even though there may not be like a definitive beginning and a definitive end, I wonder when we think about eschatology and we, we, we go into the, you know, even the scriptures and using apocalyptic literature, you know, one mirrors the other. You have Daniel and then you have Revelation borrowing and finding a new way to frame an old story. That movement in open and relational theology, is it progressive? Is it a pattern? Is it continuous? Or is it just all of the above? Yeah. So here, uh, open and relational folks might have a little bit difference of opinion. So I'm going to share my view on this. I think it's probably shared by the most, by, by the um, majority, but there could be some people who disagree with me in open and relational thought. I think progress is possible but not inevitable. The planet could get better, but it could get worse as well. There are no guarantees here. You know, there's some philosophical assumptions, most Christians don't share these, but there's some philosophical assumptions that we live in a, uh, an eternal reoccurrence, that there's no progress, there's no possibility. You might think it's progress, but we're just going to have the same thing over and over again. We don't stand outside of it to see this. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. There are some people, especially in evangelicalism, who just think things are getting worse and we're going to get to the place where they're so bad, Jesus is going to have to come back and, you know, there'll be a judgment. And, and I'm, I've already said I don't find that view very attractive. But there's some progressive Christians who will take a particular view of God's love, which I affirm, 
And oftentimes they'll link it to an evolutionary picture of the universe, which I affirm evolution. And then they'll retain a particular view of God's power that says things might look like they're getting worse, but really because of God's a God of love, it's inevitably going to get better. And I just don't buy that view in part because I don't share that view of God's power, but also in part because it just seems like there in some ways things are not getting better. I mean, I take climate change seriously. That doesn't seem to be like a turn for the good. Um, And things could really go to hell in a handbasket, to use the metaphorical phrase and not to think of it literally. So I think progress is possible, but not inevitable. You know, Tom, um, one of the things that really attracted me to, to Whitehead to process theology is the way that he takes loss and end really seriously, you know, and how open and relational theology, you know, in, in time, at least the way I understand it, I would love for you to add more, more of an explanation, but that the way we move in time with God is that each, each moment, each relational intertwined creative spark has a completion. There, there's, there's an end, and that end then feeds the next beginning, and it happens, you know, in it's it's you know complicated the way Whitehead talks about it, but right. <laughs> it happens again and again and again in a way that moves us. That's what that's how movement happens. So if you could maybe say a little more about what does an end, what do endings as part of the movement uh, look like in open yeah. and relational theology? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, let me wax philosophical just for a moment. And folks who are listening to this, stay with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this back to the question. But uh, one of the contributions open relational theology makes, and Alfred North Whitehead in particular, is to ask us to question what we think the most fundamental units of reality are. And philosophically, this is usually called the substances. And most philosophies have assumed that at the bottom of reality, at the quarks, at the atoms, whatever you think the smallest units of reality are, it's some kind of bit of matter that bounces off another bit of matter. Maybe it kind of moves in energetic ways, but it's basically, you know, like little billiard balls or BB gun balls at the bottom of reality. And that means you and I are made up of those things if we're a part of an evolutionary history, which again, I think we are. And then that approach to things really has a hard time making sense of what you and I are doing right now, which is experiencing a conversation with one another. What Whitehead and open relational thought does is say, you know what? The most fundamental units of reality are not little bits of stuff. They're events. They're occasions. And those events and occasions have mental and physical dimensions But those events and occasions happen moment, boom, 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 repeatedly. So there's a beginning and an end in every single moment. And that then contributes to the next moment. The next moment is affected by the past, and it will make a contribution to the future. And this fits so nicely with how we think about our own lives. Like we look back at ourselves and we see who we were in the past. We like some things about ourselves in the past. We don't like others. We even see what we did at lunch today and what we ate. And we may feel good or bad based on the food we ate, the experience we had there in our present moment. And so it takes this idea that experience 
occasions, events, they're the fundamental things of reality. And if that's true, and these occasions are happening moment after moment after moment, there's a beginning and end in every single moment. Then the question is, will there ever be a time in which this string or this succession of moments has an absolute end? And on that question, most open relational theologians say, no, it's going to keep going on everlastingly. And God's always going to be present and active in relationship to the succession of events. There's going to be changes over the time, over time, but there's going to be beginnings and endings moment by moment, everlastingly. Big set of ideas. And if you embrace them like I do, it makes a huge difference on how you think about all kinds of questions about Christian faith and faith beyond, in other religious traditions. With, you know, this conversation we, we're bringing in sort of to use the an old fundamentalist term, but end times yeah. eschatology. And, and I like that articulation of events. Um, and, and I wonder if there's any light. So in the sense that God continues, events continue, one of the problems with more uh, conservative interpretations is it's so anthropocentric. It all matters. It all revolves around human beings. We run the risk of doing ourselves in on this very planet, you know, to make it, you know, inhospitable to human life. You know, you've got the bajillionaires going into space to hopefully colonize other other entities and preserve the race, the human race. But in that sort of construct of beginning and end, I do worry that we will continue to consume and abuse this earth in the way we have, rendering life for our species, human species, no longer possible. I, I think that is, it is a possibility. Yeah, me too. So we're gone. I mean, I'm just imagining this future. Um, like in God's presence, like does God's presence even change? Yeah. Well, in my view, and I think most open relational views, God would always be present to whatever creaturely others that exist. But it very well could be the the case that humans eventually do things so uh, badly or the climate changes in such a way that humans can no longer exist. Um, I suspect there will still be cockroaches and God will still love the cockroaches. Um, but even if the cockroaches die, there'll be smaller units of reality that still persist. And maybe God will work with them to try to bring something new uh, that's more complex. In an open and relational perspective, we take interrelatedness super seriously. We're not only interrelated with other humans and not only with other uh, creatures, uh, but we're inter interrelated with the very smallest units of reality, the substance of, of, of our planet. Uh, now, that doesn't mean we're totally controlled by everything, but we're influenced by these interrelatedness. And since God cares about humans, dogs, worms, and quarks, God is interacting at all those levels as well. And so what God is calling us as individuals and us as a, as a species and a planet and whatever is to something that's more loving, more beautiful, more true, more excellent. And God is doing this, has always been doing this, and will continue to do it into the future. 
So does that extend to creations of humanity? So, for instance, I'm thinking, you know, you're talking about animals and microbes and people. And when I when I, you know, think of eschatology, it's always intertwined with uh, human institutions like the church or government or politics. And what is what is God's relation to those things in terms of uh, open and relational theology? Yeah, God's related to large-scale institutions as well, governments, churches, etc. God cares about societies. In open relational thinking, uh, we think the word society not only implies to large groups of people, but it applies to large groups of insects. It applies to cells or, and organs in our bodies. So the way these events are combined and structured and organized open and relational people will call those societies. And so really a human society is a society of a society of a society of many, 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 many societies. However, because in open and relational thought, God is not the one controlling things. There can be societies, governments, churches, institutions that act largely contrary to what God wants. I think it's really important to emphasize that just because some government is in place, it doesn't mean God wants that government in place, or some person was elected. It doesn't mean God orchestrated that election. Uh, open relational folks can fight the powers <laughs> that be by thinking that God is not endorsing whatever the status quo is, uh, because God's a God of love and God didn't control everything to set this person or this institution or this society in place. Wait, so so God God doesn't have a plan? Like, there's not some some end goal. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, gonna... <laughs> that's an awesome question. Um, I would put it this way. God doesn't have a plan if by that you mean like a blueprint laid out how everything is going to end up. There's no plan in that sense. But if plan means something like God has goals and intentions that we and all of creation thrive, you know, be more loving, live in harmony. God's got that general kind of plan, that general kind of set of goals, but uh, God doesn't determine all these details and somehow control things to make sure, you know, things happen exactly the way God wants. If that were the case, then we'd have to say that, you know, every murder, genocide, rape, whatever was somehow caused or allowed by God. And that's something open and relational folks are strongly opposed to thinking. So then when, how do, how do God's intentions manifest? Yeah. So the idea would be that God is working and calling at all levels of reality. And when creatures cooperate with those calls to something that's loving, good, truthful, beautiful, whatever, then that cooperation manifests this call of God. Um, because God, at least in my view, is a universal spirit that cannot be seen by, you know, can't be perceived by our eyes and ears, et cetera. We can't, you know, walk outside and see God, you know, taking a stroll around the block. What we can see, and by see, I mean, we have to make an interpretive move here, that when people do things that are excellent, when dogs do things that are excellent, when there's a beautiful sunset, that in some way creation is cooperating with the aims, the positive aims of God. And when people do things that hurt other people, 
when there's ugliness in the world, then those instances, creatures aren't cooperating with God's loving lures. So my own particular perspective on eschatology in kind of a more narrow sense is, you know, put yourself in my shoes for a moment. I grew up in an evangelical world where I'm told Jesus is coming back anytime, where I'm told that all those, you know, people of other religions have been deceived by the devil and God really only cares about us and the other 144,000 or whatever it is. And then you come to a place where I'm at where I chuck all that stuff. I think, boy, it doesn't make a lot of sense biblically even, but especially scientifically. And it presents a picture of a God who's immoral and just prefers some people and not everybody. Not the kind of image of God I think the majority of Scripture, not all of Scripture, but the majority of Scripture points to. Then what are you going to do to rethink your view of, quote, the end or eschatology? My proposal for you all and for for everyone who's listening is a proposal I like to call my relentless love view of eschatology. It says this, God always loves everyone and everything, but I'm going to focus here on humans just for a little bit, but this applies beyond humans. God always loves everyone and always in every single moment invites us to live a life of love invites us to flourish, to live abundant life, to use the phrase Jesus gives us. And we can make choices moment by moment how we're going to respond to God. If we respond well, well, then there are positive dimensions to that because love in and of itself tries to promote well-being. So saying yes to love is saying yes to well-being in some way, shape, or form. Saying no to God's call to love is saying no to well-being. So there are natural negative consequences to saying no to God's love. I don't believe in a punishing God. I don't believe God punishes us now or in an afterlife. But I do think saying no to love means saying yes to something that's less than loving, uh, ill-being, pain, disharmony, etc. So, You and I are moving through our lives moment by moment. God is calling us to do what's lovely, excellent, beautiful, loving moment by moment. When we say yes to that, we experience a certain amount of positive things. And since we live in an interrelated universe, others experience it as well. I think, well, this is going to sound revolutionary, but I think we're all going to die. (laughs) And... I believe in subjective experience beyond bodily death, or what most people call the afterlife. I don't think this particular body goes anywhere, but I think we have something like a mind that continues on, and that mind continues to be offered abundant life, offered a life of love. God doesn't decide to send some people to hell. God doesn't decide to annihilate some people, but God continues this ongoing relationship of love and calls us to live a life of love, even beyond the death of our bodies, whatever that looks like as minds. We can say yes or no. If we say no to God in the afterlife, again, natural negative consequences. They're going to look differently because we don't have bodies, but there's still natural negative psychological consequences to saying no to love in the afterlife. But in my view, God never says, you know, Jeff, I gave you 37 billion chances to say yes to me. 
when we get to 37 billion in one, that's your last chance, buddy. Because if you say no there, I'm sending you to eternal damnation. I think God never, ever gives up on anyone. No matter how bad or good they are, God always calls everyone to say yes to God's love. Now, given that I don't think God can control you, Jeff, or anybody else, I can't say it's 100% guaranteed that eventually everyone, quote, makes it to heaven or everyone cooperates with God's love because I think we have free choices. But because I think God never gives up on anyone, I have the genuine hope, not guarantee, but genuine hope that everyone will eventually cooperate with God. And that means we'll experience the kind of eternal bliss that many Christians have talked about, but not because God forced it on us, not because God decided the only way to get this bliss is to get rid of the bad girls and boys and non-binaries, but God will always be calling us to abundant life and eventually love will persuade everyone and everything. That's the hope. I hope indeed. I hope indeed. Yeah, that that's that's it. I, I appreciate that. I mean, that's interesting. I'm not sure I totally agree with you on that, Tom, but <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a a lot of ways to nuance um, you know, using open and relational theology to nuance what we think about in terms of what happens after this life. Yeah, thanks for saying that. The vision I just painted for you is my vision. Not every open and relational thinker would agree with what I just said. I do think, though, um, I don't know of any open and relational thinker who believes in a literal hell. Maybe there are some, but I, I just haven't run into them yet. There are a few who believe in annihilation, that God's going to destroy passively or actively the, the unrepentant. I know some who believe in what I sometimes call classical universalism, that God somehow is going to get the power back to force everyone into heaven. Others don't have any kind of afterlife no notion that they think that what we live now is all we get. So there's, there's options on the table here. I've just sort of presented the vision that I find most attractive. Yeah. You know, that is the question when, I've, when I have um, taught process theology, which is, you know, what I what I called it before I met you. And now yeah. I really like the idea of open and relational theology. But um, th that was often a, a real sticking point for people is they could go all the way to, well, what happens when we die? And, you know, that from the way I read Alfred North Whitehead, well, when you die, you die. You know, you you perish into God's into God's self, God's ever-enlarging self or God's ever-enlarging movement, but you live on in that you contribute to the future through your perishing, in a sense. Yeah, I think that's right. I think Whitehead himself was neutral on the uh, uh, possibility of what I call subjective immortality, but his student, a guy named Charles Hartshorn, he was definitely opposed to subjective immortality. He thought, you know, you die, you're dead, there's, there's no more continuing experience, but everything that you have done up to that point, as you, as you say, uh, contributes to the life of God, and God can use that moving into the future in God's relationships with others in creation. Now, if you're someone like me who 
believes in subjective experience beyond bodily death, you can affirm that God is using everything that you did when you were embodied in the past. So you, it's not an either or there. There are a number of, I don't think they're, major, they're the majority, but there are a significant number of people in the process tradition who reject this traditional notion of subjective immortality after death. Yeah, that's what makes it actually um, a really large tent to yes. to play in, right? Yeah. Which is, it, it's all about creativity and uh, God as the ultimate in some ways or penultimate, I guess, creative force, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. And one of the gifts that open a relational process thought provides that um, most other theologies don't is kind of implied in what we've been saying here, but not explicit. So I want to make it explicit just for a moment. Most theologies have a picture of God's power and God's plan, to get back to that word, that says that God has already either predetermined everything or God has kind of got the power to make sure what happens that's important is going to happen. And creation is kind of just along for the ride. Uh, what we do doesn't really matter, doesn't ultimately make a difference to God in the future. God could, if God wanted to, just snap a finger and the results God wants could happen no matter what we did. In open and relational thought, what we do makes a real difference to ourselves, to our planet, and to God. The future will be different because of the decisions we make right now. God's experience will be different because of our decisions. And some of the things God wants to get done won't get done unless we cooperate. That means that when we think about eschatology, we and no matter what version you have in the open and relational camp at least, that means that our choices really do have ultimate significance. And that's very different from most theologies. So as, as you were talking earlier, Tom, Bonnie, a lot of what you were saying was resonating with me in terms of, like, where does this matter in our day-to-day -day living? You know, because I think for some of us, it's not even the hope of a, some sort of eternity. But I need to know that this matters in this very moment. Um, and this goes back to Jeff, our saying that I read to you earlier uh, that made your skin crawl, you know, that... Uh, I read some evangelicals like God doesn't, you know, equip, what is it? God doesn't call the equipped he, or whatever, something like that. Some awful statement. God doesn't call the equipped, but equips the called or something like that. But, and Jeff like almost died. Uh, <clears throat> but I mean, when we think about what we are being invited into and what love looks like in the world, I mean, the truth is, I think the thing that I was getting at earlier uh, is that we always feel like the world is ending. And it is. Your world, everybody who is listening, your world is ending, for sure. And it needs to, quite frankly. <laughs> and And what happens in those moments of the world ending for you is so important. And And basically, how you sort of land whether you fall on your face or land on your feet or all of the above, I think it depends upon what your eschatology is. Is God on your side? Is God willing you into some future that is either good or bad? Or can you get to this loving uh, relational place that says, actually, 
God is partnering with me in this. And actually, the loving decision I make or don't make will play a part in God's journey and in our journey together. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's beautiful. I've been thinking about this in light of a passage in the New Testament that I was taught a lot as a kid, then kind of came to reject, and now I'm coming back to. It's that line that I'm guessing you all know about, we should take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. Like as a kid, that was used to sort of say, you're a dirty, rotten scoundrel. You got to kill yourself. Be totally committed to Jesus because you ain't got nothing to offer. Um, this is all about Jesus, nothing about you. I no longer accept that view. I don't think that makes any any sense. However, I've come to think of it, and, and you're saying this, Casey, about how we die. I've come to combine that with that Pauline phrase that uh, about becoming new creations. That taking up our cross daily means that we die to ourself moment by moment, not die to the fact that we have a self, we'll always have a self, not say that we have no value because we always have been value. We're intrinsically value. But what happens in one moment is over and completed. It's dead. We've taken up our cross and died, but there's a new creation in the next. And we go through life dying and rising, new creation, old creation, moving in a particular kind of direction. That gives me hope. And so in my day-to-day life, I think to myself, even when, especially when things are rotten, this is going to be dead. There's going to be a new creation. I don't know what that looks like. It doesn't necessarily going to mean it's going to have to be better. I have to cooperate with God and so do other people, but this is going to die and there's going to be something new. And that is a kind of hope that I think, at least for me, is inspiring. And what it allows us to do is not hold on, to hold on to moments in our past that are either good or bad. Yeah, Uh, because there is a freedom then to let go. As we are moving forward in our podcast, I we have been talking a lot about hope and love, and uh, those are the two that come in my brain immediately. But one of the things that we were talking about uh, around hope, and I love. I'm going to keep going back to this, everyone. Sorry, listeners, but but we what we were saying the vehicle to hope is curiosity and gratitude. And I think that this plays an an essential part in what we're talking about today. Because if you can get to a place uh, in your journey, because that's what we're about here at Irenicast, is helping people on the journey. If you can get to the place in your journey where you can see these risings, these risings and dyings, if that's what you want to call them, um, if you can see your life going through these patterns of risings and dyings, it will lead you to hope. Because you're not focused on your previous stories, your previous past of failure or success, but it, it, you are able to wonder and be curious about the next moment. And you will be prompted to do kinder and more loving things when you are able to let go of some of the baggage of your past. This is an essential piece of our journey forward, I think, in this conversation because we don't have to live with a narrative that says we have to have it all figured out. We don't have to live with a narrative that says that it's been figured out for us with some plan that was created without our consent by God. Yeah. But it allows us to wonder and to be grateful. I like that. I like that. Let me add a couple other narratives. We don't have to, at least from my perspective, 
There's some people I know, their narrative says, you and I are worthless scum. Our, own, our hope is entirely in God because we don't have anything to contribute. So God's going to have Luther to rescue quote. us. What's that? I said, that's a Luther quote. He said, there's nothing good in you but Christ alone. Yeah, yep. yeah. Luther would be a good illustration of that view. I'm, I'm, the book that uh, Bonnie mentioned earlier, Pluriform Love, I do a lot with uh, a contemporary Lutheran scholar named Anders Nygren, who thinks that you know we're, we're valueless. We have nothing to contribute. We're like tubes that God drops love through to the world because we can make no contribution. We're so depraved. In that scenario, the hope is entirely in God. And the problem, there's lots of problems with that, but one of them is, if it's entirely in God, our hope, and we're going through rotten times, then God's doing a piss-poor job of being the source of our rescue. God's not being the one who brings us salvation in whatever situation we're at when we go through genuine evils and unnecessary suffering and pointless pain. Some people then kind of go swing to a different narrative, which says, well, God's not the one doing anything. I guess it's up to me and my people. It's up to us. If it's to be, it's up to me. And in that scenario, I find no little little hope as well. (laughs) I mean, I think I have real value. I make real contributions, but I think it's this combination of God and creation working together that provides the ultimate grounds of hope. It's not God alone, but it's not us alone either. That God is working and wooing and persuasively calling us and all creation to something better, but we have to respond. To me, that's a narrative that is truly hopeful. So how then do you hear that wooing? Well, let me begin by saying, at least for me, and I suspect for everyone, it's not 100% crystal clear. If God had the kind of capacity to make it so obvious to us moment by moment what the right thing is to do, then God is, again, asleep at the job. Because at least for me, and I'm guessing for you all, I don't always know the best thing to do in every moment. So I think we have to do things to discern what God might be up to. And here, I think the Christian tradition and other religious traditions have pointed us to lots of tools of what that looks like. Discernment can involve looking at scriptures, studying, prayer, meditation, education. It can involve so many different things that can incline us to probably have a better idea of what God's calling us to do without walking around saying, I know what God's will is. I've got it all figured out. So we go through these kinds of practices individually and collectively to try to to use the, the old phrase, hear God's voice in a clearer way without presuming to think we got it all figured out. And I think too, Tom, you know, you began with this. And I think it's it's a good place maybe to also maybe end if we're gonna talk about endings. <laughs> um that that, you know, you're what I heard you say was that your ability to return to theism was based on an intuitive understanding of that meaning exists in the world and that love is real 
and I can embody love, and therefore there must be more to to reality than nothing. <laughs> or yep. And so I think that you know that discernment, like being in touch with one's own intuition, I think is sometimes where we often find that voice of God, the lure of God, and yeah, I mean, there's many tools to get in touch with that, but. It's it's not far from us. The voice is not far from us. The lure is is in a sense part of us because God is a part of each of us. I think sometimes, especially those of us who grew up fundamentalist, we have checklist mind. Yep. Um, and I just wanted to <laughs> I wanted to just shift that a little bit and say it's the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I still read the Bible, but often my profound religious experiences, my sense of the spiritual in my life comes when I'm out hiking, like yesterday when I was out in a place called Alvord Desert in eastern Oregon, and I was walking amongst, uh, I saw I saw a coyote, and then moments later heard these coyotes yipping and yapping at one another. And I stopped, and I just felt this deep sense of beauty and awe it was a way to discern something alive and beautiful in the world that wasn't directly to tie to any religious experience, but it was my sense, and I don't know for sure, but my sense that God was present to me in that moment through creation. And that's been a really important part of my own discernment and intuition process. Yeah, this has been a really deeply rich conversation. Uh, thank you again, Tom, for being here and enlightening us. My pleasure. I don't know about enlightening. I'm just sharing <laughs> the things that I've been thinking about, and hopefully they're helpful in some way. Tom, tell us about more of your work, what's coming up, uh, web contact forms, books, conferences, which I have to give a plug to the Open and Relational Conference Bonnie and I got to attend last summer. It was a beautiful location. It was a beautiful group of people. We made some very strong connections and, and learned by being together. You know, that relational aspect was alive and well. So thank you for that. So tell tell our listeners how to, to learn more and what's coming. Yeah, well, thanks. first of all, thanks for coming to that conference. That was a blast. And we're going to do the same uh, location this summer. So this is called ORTCON 22, Open and Relational Theology Conference in 2022. It will be at the Grand Targhee Resort, which is a ski, a ski resort right on the uh, Wyoming-Idaho uh, border in between the Teton National Park and, and uh, Yellowstone National Park. And uh, it's July 4 through 8. If you just do a, a search for ORTCON22, O-R-T-C-O-N-22, you'll probably find out information. But there's a, an online conference coming up uh, February 19th, which is an all-day event. Uh, we don't expect people to be on Zoom all day, but um, we have 10 uh, books and authors that are related to open relational thought. And they're going to talk about their books. We have panelists. Uh, sort of probing the insights in the book and asking questions. You can come and be a part of this live. Uh, and I, we, again, we don't expect people to be on all day. There'll be videos and audios available for 90 days after the conference for people to download and, and listen to or watch at their convenience. But that's called Ortline, O-R-T-L-I-N-E, Ortline 22, Open and Relational Theology Conference Online. 
maybe what I should have started with is to say, and maybe I'll end with this as well, I direct this Center for Open and Relational Theology, and we have a pretty good website with some great resources. If people want to go deeper into the subject, um, there's resources there that are aimed at people without a you know a technical theology background, but also for people who might have that, they could go uh, deeper in that way as well. So uh, look up uh, there. It's uh, the the letter C, the number four ort dot com. C for ort dot com. And I might as well say, since we're both here together, that Tom and I had the privilege of co-editing a book with, along with a couple yes. of other co-editors, right, called Partnering with God. And it's a wonderful collection of essays. Also, uh, re- regardless of your entrance or your approach to open a relational theology, you will find something in this book. There's a yeah. spectrum of thoughts and ideas from from very philosophical, theoretical to experiences, narratives about people's stories and lives and everything in between. And Rajiv is a contributor to the book. So, yeah. It was so much fun doing that with you. I mean, you and the other editors did most of the actual editing and I did more of the managing, but it was a lot of fun. And boy, I'm, I'm proud of that book. There's a lot of really good essays in there. So thanks so much for that. Well, anytime working with Bonnie is fun. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I like the way you think. Casey, Casey gets paid. <laughs> <laughs> paid hype man for Bonnie. <laughs> you know, actually, maybe I should say one more thing. Since you mentioned that book, I did publish a book this summer also uh, about the same time as Partnering with God that's simply called Open and Relational Theology. And it's written for people who have no technical training in theology. Uh, I like to say I wrote it so my mother could get an idea of the weird ideas that I have. Um, and so, you know, it's written at like a, a high school reading level, but it's really provocative in that it compares open and relational thought with what I call conventional theologies. I would encourage uh, those who are listening to this to um, check out that book if you want to go deeper in open and relational theology. Yeah, thanks for that resource, Tom. And thank you for your body of work and your willingness to be with us today. We are, you know, looking at our summer schedules and finances and hoping that we can get to Grand Targhee again. It was it was a really meaningful, meaningful time in a lovely well, Isn't that location. the whole reason why Bonnie went back to teach? Because she wanted to save up for the summer? <laughs> yeah, I think that might be it. That might be it. I'll have to ask her. I'll have to... Well, folks, let us know what you think. To add your voice to this particular conversation, comment on the show notes at arenacast.com slash 196. In the show notes, you'll find relevant links and a complete list of all the ways to add your voice to this conversation. And if you haven't already, come on, get with it now, join the email list. It's the best way to keep updated on all things Arenacast. You can find a link to subscribe in the show notes at arenacast.com slash 196. And that will do it for this conversation. If you enjoy Renacast and would like to join in supporting the work we do, you can go to our PayPal link at arenacast.com slash PayPal. We're committed to keeping the show free for listeners, but there are costs involved and your financial support helps. That's arenacast.com slash PayPal. 
And we are a nonprofit, so your donations are tax deductible. And you can also support the show by simply making sure you follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if the platform allows it, leave a rating and or review. I happen to be a Spotify person. They just rolled out ratings. So get on there if you're a a Spotify person and give us those five stars. So for this week, this is Rajiv. I'm Jeff. I'm Bonnie. And I'm Casey. And thank you again, Tom. And thank you all for listening and joining the conversation. Thank you.